This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in the book of Acts. So if you brought a Bible, uh, we are, or have it on your phone, or however you look at it, we are in Acts chapter 9. <coughs> Acts chapter 9. Let me catch you up really briefly on what's happened the last two weeks uh, as we've moved through Acts. We have um, read about and studied the conversion of a guy named Saul. And uh, Saul was a persecutor of the church. He was Jewish. He was a leader. Uh, he was a scholar, kind of a rabbi kind of a guy, and he was opposed to people who were believing in Jesus. And so the specific thing that we learned of him is he was traveling to a town where he was going to arrest Christians and uh, bring them to trial. And on his way, Jesus appears to him and blinds him and calls him to himself, and he, he becomes a convert. And so the guy who's going to town to arrest Christians becomes literally a preacher. And the very next thing we see him doing is he is teaching people that Jesus is the Son of God and uh, on his way to arrest them. So it's a, it's a wonderful passage to see the irony of grace, the amazing nature of grace, where God intervenes in people's lives and turns our lives upside down. That's exactly what he does to this man, Saul. And uh, so following that, he's, he's preaching, and uh, we talked a lot about last week those who were a bridge builder with Saul into the church, because everybody was scared to death of him, scariest guy to ever visit church, because he shows up and says, I'm a Christian, and everybody's like, right, uh, you're here to get intelligence on us and find out who we are and where we live and arrest us. But he really was. And it took two guys, a guy named Ananias and a guy named Barnabas, who in two different cities would be a bridge builder and would take the scariest visitor to the church and seek to incorporate him in. And then he is a leader and is preaching God's word. So that's what we looked at last week. Let's pray. And then we are going to begin uh, to look at a new passage, the next section in Acts chapter 9 today. Father, thank you that you are a God who in love uh, reaches out to us and saves us in Christ. Thank you that you made a way through the, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you that you're calling us by your spirit to turn to you. Thank you that you saved this man Saul who becomes Paul. And thank you for saving us. And Lord, for those who've yet to experience this wonderful, eternal uh, turnaround in life. We just pray that you would do that for them today. God, thank you for your, your great grace to us. And we pray that you would speak to us clearly now. Give us ears to hear what you are saying. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word truthfully uh, to serve the, the church here today. Lord, speak to us. We are listening. We want to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what I'm going to do, because this is a long narrative, we're going to focus on a guy named Cornelius and his conversion today. It's going to be pretty, it's pretty long narrative, so we're going to do it over two weeks. But there's a few verses we're going to cover before that. So starting, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read a little bit and then preach about it, explain it, apply it, then read a little more and preach a little more. So we'll kind of move through with that rhythm through the text today. So verse 31 is where we're starting, 931. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What we're calling our series Multiply because that's what happens at repeated times in the life of the church. God multiplies the people of God by his grace. And what we see here is that once the chief persecutor became a convert, 
uh, the church had peace. The church experiences peace. They're not under this intense persecution at this point. And there's this season of time for the church where uh, Luke writes here that they're being built up. That is, they're being strengthened, edified, encouraged. They're growing in maturity. They're growing up in the Lord. And he really says there's two aspects of that. And this is always part of growing in the Lord. They are, first of all, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So the fear of the Lord, they are aware of the holiness of God. They're living aware of the holiness of God, but not just the holiness of God. If you live merely with a view of the holiness of God, you will despair. Uh, You will have no hope for your life because you will just be constantly aware of how holy He is and how not holy you and I are. And so it's a despairing way to live life. They're not just living only in the holiness of God, the fear of the Lord, but also the comfort or the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit always shines the light on Jesus. And so they're aware of God's great holiness in Christ, but they're also aware of his mercy and his grace, and they are encouraged. There's a comfort. They're not sinfully fearful or, or in some inappropriate way. They are strengthened and comforted by the Holy Spirit. So we always want to have the holiness of God in view, and we always want to have the love and mercy of God in view together, not one or the other. I love the way pastor and author uh, Tim Keller refers to this. He says that once we meet Jesus in the gospel, here's what we learn. We learn that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared imagine. And we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope than we ever dared hope. So when we meet Christ, the reality is we see our great need for a Savior, we see our sin, but we also find this out. We're loved beyond what we would have imagined or dreamed. We, can't, we couldn't have even conceived of how much God would accept us, love us, and welcome us in Jesus Christ. So that's how they're living, and the church is multiplying. The next thing we, we see is that Jesus is moving through his church, and specifically through Peter here, to begin outreach beyond, the, uh, beyond Jerusalem. And he is uh, going to a, to a town called Lydda, where he will meet a man uh, named Aeneas, and we will see Jesus' power over sickness in the first section here. So let's read verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So we see Jesus extending the reach of the church by the Holy Spirit through an apostle, Peter, here. And we see him doing that by revealing the power of Jesus over sickness. That's the first thing we're going to see. Next, we're going to see the power of Jesus over death, physical death. And then we're going to see the power of Jesus over spiritual death. But he starts with the power of Christ over sickness. And so Peter is, he's kind of itinerant. He's traveling around and preaching the gospel. And he comes to this city and he meets a man. It's a coastal town. It's northwest of Jerusalem. And he meets a man who is paralyzed. Uh, This isn't a small deal. He has been unable to walk for eight years, which in this culture means he cannot work. He cannot provide for himself. There's no government assistance. He is likely a, uh, a hurting man. He may be a marginalized man. We don't know that for sure. But he is in a circumstance that's very difficult. And God breaks through to raise this man up. And Peter ultimately comes to him and prays for his healing. And it's wonderful because what Peter does in this and the next section is he does exactly what he saw Jesus do. 
He says that he goes to this guy and he says to him, verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. It's clear Peter's not healing him. Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed, is what he says. Uh, It reminds us of the passage in Mark. I think it's, well, I can't remember, but somewhere in Mark, in Capernaum, where this group of people is packing out this house where Jesus is teaching, and these friends have a paralytic uh, that's a friend of theirs, paralyzed guy. They want him to get into Jesus to be healed, and they can't get in the house, so they climb up on the roof, they dig a hole in this probably uh, in this roof, and they lower their friend down to meet Jesus. And Jesus says to him, uh, when he encounters him, "Rise, take up your mat, and walk." And Peter does the same thing. He comes to this guy and he says, "Jesus heals you. Rise," causes him to rise and make your bed. Now, he's not using, like, mom language here, make your bed, you know. Before you use those new legs, I want that bed made up. You are not going to go out and walk as a healed man until that bed's clean. You know, he's not doing that. It means fold up your mat. It's the same thing. Pick up your mat and walk. You're healed. He does just what Jesus does, only now Jesus does it through him, through the apostle. And the result is that... 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is the plain, the area that surrounded Lydda, they all turned to the Lord. So Christ is extending the reach of the church by doing a healing miracle where Peter, it's implied, is able to communicate to them about Jesus who did the healing, and uh, many believe. Jesus' power over sickness, and he uses that to extend the church. Secondly, with the next passage, we see that he actually raises someone to life through Peter. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So the next thing that Luke records here is uh, his power over death. It's another raising miracle, though this time he's not raising this person up to walk, but raising her back to life. That's what he accomplishes by his power here. Her death was a big deal for the young church here. We know all the churches are new. It's a fledgling movement here, the Christian movement. And uh, so it's a big deal because she was a woman who had impacted many widows. The widows were vulnerable. They were needy and, uh, in this society. And so she provided for them. What did she do? Well, she sewed tunics, which is kind of an undergarment, and other clothes which would have gone over the tunic. And so she made clothes for them. And so when she died, they gathered around, and they're weeping, and they're holding the things that she had made to provide for them. It's a powerful picture. In Acts 6, the church um, deploys certain servants, likely deacons, to ensure that all of the widows were fed. But here we have a woman who on her own is taking care of the widows. 
uh, who from her heart is compassionately caring for them. And so they are obviously sad. Now, they do something unusual. They wash her body. They put her in an upper room. They hear Peter's around. And so they send some people to get Peter and tell him to urgently come. What is this about? Well, they're probably not just inviting Peter to come and join them in mourning. They're probably actually expecting that Peter might be used by God to raise her. It seems like that's the expectation. So he comes, and when he comes, just like the healing miracle, he does just what Jesus does. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, this is what he did. He showed up in the room, and he told everybody to get out of the room. So Peter's just doing what he saw the Lord do. I I think when we're going to have a resurrection that we should just clear the room. So he gets everybody out of the room. And, um, or maybe a resuscitation. Usually the word resurrection means you're resurrected for good, like Jesus. Um, she's not resurrected for good. She's going to die later, and then we're all going to be resurrected one day. So resurrection, resuscitation, whatever it is, she's really dead, and she's going to come back to life temporarily, and however many years later she dies. So she, uh, she comes back to life, and what he does is he clears the room, and it says, verse 40, uh, he knelt down and prayed. So he is recognizing God would have to do this. God, he's recognizing the power of God, not himself. And then he says, Tabitha, arise. So evidently, in prayer, he, the Lord spoke to him, I'm going to raise this woman from the dead. Peter doesn't just walk around willy-nilly calling people to be raised from the dead. That's not how it works. But God has communicated to him that he's going to do this miracle. And so he tells her to get up. She gets up. Everybody's celebrating. And many people believe is what it says, 42, it became known throughout Joppa, and many people believe in Jesus because of this miracle. So two great miracles that the Lord does to communicate the power of the resurrected Savior. Jesus is alive, and he's on the move, and he's building the church, and he's doing it in this case through an apostle who's who's being used with signs and wonders to draw attention to Christ. And so he heals someone who is hopelessly immobilized. And he raises someone who is hopelessly dead and grants her new life. And many people in both situations believe. And we look at that and say, this is amazing. But what happens next is actually more amazing. What happens next for the average Jew would, would perhaps, be, perhaps be a greater miracle. For a paralyzed person to walk is amazing. For a dead person to come to life, well, I can't imagine anything, humanly speaking, more amazing than that. But what's about to happen are Gentiles are about to become Christians. Gentiles are going to be welcomed into the family of God. And that is astounding. That is mind-blowing. And what's about to happen will cause a great ruckus and a great problem for the early church. We get the whole book of Galatians that's kind of related to this. Uh, We're going to get Acts 15, a whole council that's going to need to meet and figure out how, what, what do the Gentiles need to do who are now Christians. So this is a big deal that those who are viewed unclean are going to be cleaned and brought into the family of God. And there's not going to be a separation between Jew and Gentile. We see at the end of the verse we just read that 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 Peter is already warming up for the experience that he's about to have in reaching Cornelius verse 43 says after he's in Joppa after this Tabitha lady was raised from the dead it said he stayed there for many days with Simon who was a tanner so there's many things in the Old Testament which rendered a person unclean Uh, there was a distinction there was a distinction between 
between clean and unclean, pure and impure, in the Old Testament. We find this in Leviticus. There were certain laws where God was wanting to emphasize, as he prepared for the coming of Christ, he wanted to emphasize holiness and how the people of God had some very tangible separation from the nations around them. And so they were not able to eat certain kinds of food that the nations, uh, the pagan folk, ate. Uh, and uh, there was a number of things about them which separated them. There were certain things, if they came in contact with death, then they were unclean ceremonially for a period of time <clears throat> because God brings life. And so there was these kind of symbolic things which communicated holiness and life. And so if you came in contact with a dead animal, you were rendered unclean. And a tanner was someone who's in contact with dead animals all the time. A tanner is someone who works with animal hides. So Peter goes and lodges in a home with a guy, he's not a Gentile, but a guy who is unclean ceremonially most of the time. So this is preparing him for what's going to happen in chapter 10, where it's not Jesus over sickness or Jesus over death, it's Jesus over spiritual death and Jesus over darkness, Jesus invading the Nations, literally, the Gentiles, that's what happens next. So let's read about this, Cornelius uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly a vision in a, of, in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we move from chapter 9, the conversion of Saul, who's the apostle to the Gentiles, to, here's a spoiler alert, what's going to happen, and we'll cover this next week, is... uh, Cornelius and his friends and family are all going to get saved. They're all going to become Christians, the first Gentile Christians. Um, so that's, what's, that's where this is going. But we now see the conversion of the first Gentile. Saul was the scariest visitor to ever come to church um, because he was threatening the church, but at least he wasn't a Gentile. This will prove to be a far scarier experience for folks who do not know how to handle the fact that God is relating differently uh, in terms of ceremonial, the ceremonial law, and that their customs, which were not God's to begin with, of radical separation from Gentiles, that God is going to obliterate that, and he's going to bring the two together in Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing as he comes to uh, Caesarea and Cornelius and the Gentiles, what we're seeing is God's heart for the nations. What we're seeing is a fulfillment of what God first spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12 and said to him, I will make you a people and from you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now thousands of years later, the families of the earth, the nations are going to be reached and it's going to start right here 
through Cornelius and his family. And so in a very real way, this is so important, what we're reading right now and what we'll study next week. Unless you're Jewish by background, you're here today as a Christian because of this. It's because God went to the nations. That's us. We're the nations. Uh, Don't be American-centric and think the nations are everybody out there and we're God's people. And so we go to the nations. No, God came to us. We're the nations. Uh, It is the Jews who were the people of God. And God came from them with a Savior, Jesus Christ, and reached the nations like Italians. Cornelius is from uh, connected to Rome. So like Italians or like whatever, whatever your ethnic background is, uh, we are the nations. And so he has come to us in Christ. And we're here today with Jew and Gentile as one people because of the gospel, which is first applied to Gentiles right here. Well, here's, here's what happens. This guy, Cornelius, he lives in Caesarea, and it says that he is a centurion, um, of the Italian cohort. A centurion was a, a captain, a guy who oversaw a hundred soldiers. So he was in charge of a hundred soldiers. That's a powerful guy. A cohort uh, was six centuries. So it was six groups of a hundred. So there's 600 soldiers stationed in this area. They're connected to Rome. They're the Italian cohort. And he oversees a hundred of them. And what their role is, is to keep Israel under their thumb. They are politically over Israel. So they're ultimately uh, sort of oppressive in nature. So his job description, now he isn't really this way we find out, but his job description is oppressor. Uh, oppressor of God's people. He's supposed to keep everyone under Rome's thumb and make sure there's no problem. They have freed, limited freedoms for sure, but he's to make sure that nothing, there's no trouble to the empire from these Jews. So that's who he is. Now, it tells us that he is a God-fearer, that he, is, he feared God, which probably means a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a Gentile who worshipped Yahweh, who is the God of the Old Testament, our God, uh, worshipped him, but they, it wasn't a convert, a full convert to Judaism. So a God-fearer didn't take the sign of circumcision, which was the sign of God's covenant, nor did they obey the dietary laws. So he, he would have been, uh, a God-fearer would have been free to uh, not eat kosher, but eat whatever, and uh, to not be circumcised. So they weren't, they weren't viewed by the Jews of this time as really God's people. They were still frowned upon. But we find out he is a respected guy later. And he could be respected because Luke tells us here that he gave alms generously to the poor and he prayed continually to God. Uh, He's a serious guy. He gave a lot of money to poor people. He was rich and he was powerful. A centurion made about five times what a regular soldier would have made. So this guy made big, big money for those around him compared to those around him. He's a powerful guy, but he stewarded his resources to care for the poor. And so we're going to find out later that he was respected among the Jews for that, at least. And he was also a man of prayer. His, his whole household, verse 2, was God-fearer. So he was a man of influence. His household was following the Lord as well. But still... There is this radical divide between Jew and Gentile, even among a God-fearer. And it's just almost impossible for us to really understand culturally how far apart they were. John Stott, in his commentary uh, on Acts, writes the following. I wanted to read you a little bit because I think he makes some good points about what the culture was really like between Cornelius and Peter, who were about to meet as Jew and Gentile. He says, it's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf 
which stretched in those days between the Jews on the one hand and Gentiles, even God-fearers, on the other. Not that the Old Testament itself countenance such a divide. So he's saying the Old Testament didn't have, didn't uh, require the same divide that was going on in Israel at this time. On the contrary, alongside the oracles of the Old Testament against the hostile nations, the Old Testament affirmed that God had a purpose for the nations. By choosing and blessing one family, that's Abraham, he intended to bless all the families of the earth. So psalmists and prophets foretold the day when God's Messiah would inherit the nations. The Lord's servant would be their light. All nations would flow to the Lord's house. And God would pour out his spirit on all humankind. The tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride and hatred. They despised Gentiles as dogs, that's what they called them, the dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his own home. On the contrary, all familiar interaction with Gentiles was forbidden. You couldn't even have casual interaction with them if you were a serious Jew in this time. No pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile. This, then, was the entrenched prejudice which had to be overcome before Gentiles could be admitted into the Christian community on equal terms with Jews and before the church could become a truly multiracial, multicultural society. Luke regards this episode of Cornelius' conversion as being so important that he narrates it twice, first in his own words, right here, and then in Peter's, with the latter explained to the Jerusalem church in chapter 11. So he's saying it is, they were so separated that you couldn't even, a Jew wouldn't even go into the house of a Gentile. That, that's the background. They viewed them as dogs, wouldn't even have familiar conversation with them. So that's the environment where this guy, um, this God-fearer named Cornelius has a vision. Peter's about to have a vision as well. God is going to miraculously bridge this gap between Jew and Gentile, and he's going to do it between Cornelius and his people and uh, with Paul. So Cornelius is praying. He's praying at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. That was the hour of prayer for the uh, Jews, so his spiritual clock was set to um, you know, Hebrew standard time, I guess. He's praying when they pray, and uh, this angel appears to him and speaks to him. And the angel says, your, your prayers have ascended to the Lord. The Lord has heard them. Uh, just like God heard the prayers of the slaves in Egypt and, and freed them. It says that the slaves in Egypt, their, their prayers ascended to the Lord. The same thing here. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. God speaks to him through this angel and says, I want you to go to Joppa. And there's a guy named, there named Simon. He's called Peter. He's staying at a guy's house named Simon as well. And I want you to go there and, and, and bring him back. And that's it. So he gets two of his servants, he gets a devout soldier, so this is an influential guy, he's also got a soldier who fears God like he does, and he sends them off to this Peter's house, Simon's house. Let's pick it up, here's what happens next, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance 
and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Memorize that one. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, <clears throat> the Spirit said to him, <clears throat> "Excuse me, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Okay, so here's what happens. Peter <clears throat> climbs up on the roof at noon to pray. And we th that sounds strange, doesn't it? We think here, I don't know if you've looked at the roof, the roof lines in Frisco, but they are like steep. They're the highest pitched roofs I've ever seen. So it's not like he's, you know, hanging up there uh, like some yahoo trying to do his Christmas lights every year. He's about to fall off like uh, our roofs. It, it was a flat roof. The houses in, in this time would have had a flat roof that you could climb up on by stairs or via ladder. So he goes up there and prays. And here's what I love about his prayer. It's noon, so it's lunchtime, and he gets hungry during his prayer. This is very releasing to me, to know that it's okay to pray and be distracted with a growling stomach. Just take, there's parts of the Bible like this you need to take great comfort in. And so I take great comfort that even an apostle who's about to reach the Gentiles can not be so hyper-spiritual that he's never hungry or something. He's like getting hungry, so he, they go prepare him something to eat. And while they do, he has a vision of food, which if I ever had a vision for the Lord, I'm pretty sure that's what it would be about as well, a vision of food. And it would definitely be a vision like his of bacon. So he has this vision. And uh, so what he sees is this sheet coming down with all kinds of animals on it. And we know there's unclean animals on there because God's going to tell him to eat it. And he's going to say no. And God's going to say, don't call that uncommon. So we know there were some uh, animals on there that were that God says he's made clean that were previously unclean. So he has this vision <clears throat> and uh, there are animals on there that he would not have eaten, and uh, God says to him, kill and eat. And so what he says is he responds back to God, verse uh, 14, by no means, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I'm a separate man. I've never had interaction with the common and the unclean. I've never, I've never bridged or joined or come in contact with things that are common or unclean. What we're going to find out in a minute is the vision is about unclean people, ultimately. And so he's saying, I'm a separate man. I've never encountered uh, that. How can this be that you're calling me to eat this? One author said that the vision was, quote, calculated to disgust any Orthodox Jew. A sheet with pigs running around on it and being told to kill and eat would be disgusting or 
or shrimp or whatever sea, sea creature that you could not eat, the bottom feeders, that kind of thing. So he, he, he ultimately is aghast. He's shocked at this and tells God, I've, I've never done anything like that. So God addresses him a second time. He says, don't call what I've made clean, unclean, what I've uh, set apart. Don't call this to be, uh, you know, don't say this is out of bounds. I'm telling you it's not out of bounds. It's what God tells him. So the Spirit speaks to him a third time. Second time is, you need to eat this. The third time, he says, look, there's three guys that are coming for you. When they come, I want you to go with them. And he says, I want you to go with, with them without, verse 20, without hesitation. The word hesitation is, can also be dis, um, translated as distinction. I want you to go with them without distinguishing yourself, without hesitating because you view yourself as clean and them as unclean. I don't want you to do that. I want you to be with them. I want you to go with them. And so about that time, they're saying, hey, is Peter here? And they say, yes, he is. Peter comes down and says, I'm the guy you're looking for. What, what do you need? And they say, well, our master had a vision and an angel told him uh, to come get you. And Peter invites them in. Now, it's already a semi-unclean house because the guy's a tanner. But still, he invites Gentiles into the house, assuming they lodge there because they travel the next day, assuming they eat. And so this is a radical move. Right now, Gentiles coming into the house. Here's what happens next, verse 23. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he was talking with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's the interpretation of the vision he had. I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in, the bright, in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in a house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Amazing, amazing sign. Cornelius uh, gathers all his friends and family, just packs out the house. And when Peter shows up, because he's had this vision and because he's a little ill-informed, he bows down and worships Peter. Peter says, do not worship me. I'm a man just like you are. Please don't do that. And Peter's first introduction, besides don't worship me, his first words after that are, look, you guys know I'm not really supposed to be here. It's unlawful. Not according to the Old Testament law would it have been unlawful for him to be there, but by Jewish custom, it would have been unlawful. You know it's unlawful for me to be here. It's against customary standards. However, God told me to come. And that's why I'm here, because you're not unclean. In other words, God told me to associate freely with you. God 
told me that it's okay. Indeed, I'm commanded to not view you as different than myself. I'm not to view myself in distinction from you, separate from you in some way that we cannot relate or talk. God told me to be with you in this situation. So what do you want? Why, why, why did you call me? And then he begins to say, hey, look, we, I had this vision, and so we're all here sitting in the presence of God. Speak. Talk about a guy that's receptive. He said, we're at God's presence. Just speak to us. Hungry. Now, next week we'll look at what Peter says to them and what happens. Again, I'm kind of blowing it for you by telling them they all get converted, and it's a radical. It's, not a, uh, it's a radical conversion. It's a great story. So he, he tells him that and says, we are leaning forward, ready to hear. This is amazing. God has had to break down the cultural barriers to make this happen. He's had to put Peter in a trance and give him a radical vision that would blow his mind, and then talk to him three times about it because he was hesitant to respond. He has to send an angel to visit Cornelius to go and call for this guy. He has to do all of this miraculous stuff to get these guys in the room together where the good news can be announced to Gentiles because Christ is on a mission to reach people, and the, the gospel is spreading beyond Israel to the Gentiles. And there's two points I just want to make as we wrap up here with application from this account. And the first one is that this passage shows us that Jesus is reaching all kinds of people. He is reaching all kinds of people. And that will get a hearty amen from all of us. But it's very different to affirm that, that we want to see all kinds of people meet the Lord, that we want to see the nations come to the Lord. And it's very different to embrace that and walk that out. Because Peter has got some, this is not easy for him. He's got some barriers to this idea. It's not comfortable. And it's not comfortable for us, if we're honest, to say that God is reaching all kinds of people, often people that we would not imagine, often people that we would view ourselves as separate from, often people that we would view ourselves as distinct from, and God is reaching them. There is no distinction. We're not uncommon and they common. We pure and they impure. We're all in need of a Savior. And so there is this sense that God, through the gospel, is reaching out beyond us. And this was hard for Peter to understand at first. What's happening, God is not overturning in this moment the ceremonial dietary laws. Jesus already did that. In Mark, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. You're not defiled by what you eat. It's what comes out of him from his heart. We're defiled by the sin in our heart. We're not defiled by eating, uh, uh, by eating pork. That's what Jesus said. And then there's a, Mark makes a statement. It says, parentheses, by this, Jesus declared all food clean. Jesus has already declared all food clean. Peter was present for that teaching. But when he hears this and he sees this vision, it's just beyond. He just cannot embrace the idea, Peter, eat like a Gentile. Peter, you are free, indeed, in this case, you're called to interact with the common, interact with those far from God, interact with those who are separate. You are called to do that, Peter. And I love Peter's response to that, verse, 13, verse 14. Peter said, by no means, Lord. When he says kill and eat, by no means, Lord. So he says, Lord, I'm submitted to your rulership. He calls him Lord. You are Lord. And I will not do what you just told me to do. 
And what kind of submission to lordship? This is Peter. Peter, he's changed a lot, but there's still the old Peter showing up here. I mean, it, by no means. This is the same Peter says, Jesus, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Pretty much something you don't want to hear from the Lord calling you the devil. And so he does that. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And now God's saying, kill and eat. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. Submitted to you as Lord. Conditionally, on my terms, by what I think is the right thing to do. I love it. And I love his opening line when he gets there with all the people, beside don't worship me. Opening line is, hey, look, everybody, I'm not even supposed to be here. Let's get that out. This is not very comfortable, and this is really kind of blowing my The only reason I'm here is because God told me to come here three times. Really, he told me <laughs> three times. Why am, I, why am I rehearsing that? Because this was not natural for Peter to be thinking that God is going to do what he promised to do. That God really is, now understand this is a unique event in salvation history. This is sort of, sort of the Gentile Pentecost. The Spirit's going to be poured out upon them just as he was on the Jews in, uh, in Acts 2. So I know there's something unique happening here. But there's a principle that's beyond the unique historical occurrence of God first reaching Gentiles. And that is that the Spirit... The Spirit of God reaches people, all kinds of people that are different. And this is, this is difficult for Peter to reach to those with different customs that he views as far from God, that he views as opposed to God, and, and they, they were, the Gentiles, they are. God is calling him to be used to reach them. Jesus is reaching all kinds of people, and he desires to do it through his people, and that can be stretching. And Peter's like, really eat that? Really be with them? Like, invite them into our house? Go to his house and likely eat as well food that has not been prepared ceremonially in a clean manner? Go among the Gentiles? Really them? See, God's heart is for the nations, and he's beginning to reach the nations right here. These are the nations. This is an Italian guy, but whatever. He's a Roman guy, so he, he's the nations. He's a Gentile. We're the nations. God is, has reached us with the gospel, and we're to reach other nations, the people who are not God's people, the people who are distant from God. The nations are all the way across the world, and the nations are next door and across the cubicle. The nations, he's reaching them. He's stretching Peter. And this is the glory of the gospel, is that in the gospel, Jew and Gentile are united. It's a level playing field. God saves Jew and Gentile alike and brings them together. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer uh, male or female. There's no longer slave or free. What is he meaning by that? He means by regardless of your station or regardless of where there may be distinctions that oppose one another in the culture, that is, not, that is not true in a gospel economy, that God brings us together. And he's doing that. He's bringing Jew and Gentile alike here in the gospel. He's taking huge walls. The gospel comes in and it destroys huge walls. There were biblical walls that separated Jew and Gentile practice, but there were also all of these customs that were extracurricular that separated them. And he comes in and he just blows them down. And he, he draws, he's bridging people together. And, and he's taking the initiative in this. He's putting people in trances and he is giving angelic visitations. He's going to great lengths to ensure that the death and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Christ has its intended result. 
which is to build a church, a people together that will display the glory of God by their lives. That's what's going on here, and he's taking the initiative. Here's one thing I think is very interesting about evangelism as we walk through Acts. It's all it's so frequently God taking sovereign initiative and the people of God just responding to what God's already doing. Now, I know Jesus says we're to go. That's an imperative, a command that we are to go. But we're not to go and just make things happen. We're to go, open our mouths, live our lives, reach out. We're to go and find God at work all around us. Before Peter even had this vision, he's just up praying on the roof. God's already been up to something. God's already been visiting a guy. Before that, with an angel, God's already got guys approaching to knock on the door right now that are saying, hey, we're here. He's just praying, and God's already orchestrating this whole room full of outsiders who are saying, we're in the presence of God. Preach the gospel to us. God is doing all of this, and Peter is just following what the Lord is doing. And that's so much what the gospel really is. It's, 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 uh, evangelism really is. It's being aware of opportunities. It's finding God at work. It's being aware, not being oblivious, not being so busy that I forget the opportunities, not being so, uh, this guy prayed all the time, it said, about Cornelius. He's just in touch with the Lord. He's communing with the Lord. He's thinking about the Lord. And he's ready when the Lord speaks to him to, to, to come to Christ. But the reality is, for those of us who are in Christ, that it's, it's oftentimes just being alert, just being aware, just showing up in life, looking and, and, and expecting that it is common for God to take people that are different than us and connect us and bridge into their lives with the gospel. As opposed to writing people off, as opposed to assessing and judging and saying, well, I can never connect with that person, Instead of doing that, saying, no, Jesus is reaching all kinds of people with the gospel. And he wants to use all kinds of people, including me. I recently was in a conversation with someone I didn't really know prior to this conversation. It was a lady. And uh, she was asking me uh, what my view of, did I believe in karma as kind of, you know, a reality? That was I living my life with the doctrine of, of karma? Because evidently she did, as we talked. Karma meaning that I don't know if she believed like in multiple lives and if you do something in this life, you come back, you know, in a, in a future life, you come back as something. Else. I don't know if she believed all that, but she believed that, you know, karma, that there would be this force, that there would be fate, that everybody's going to get what's coming to them. And so if you're really bad, bad things are going to happen to you. If you're really good, good things are going to happen to you. And she had a real personal story that she told me and someone had sinned against her really grievously. Uh, that wasn't her word. She didn't use the word sin, but somebody had harmed her. And uh, so she thought karma gave her comfort because if fate is alive and well, then fate will make that person pay for what they did to her. So she loved karma. So she asked me, what do you think about karma? I didn't wake up that day saying to-do list. Find someone convinced of the philosophy of karma and seek to enter an apologetic conversation. I didn't think about that. I'm not thinking about any of this stuff. I'm thinking about what's my next thing i got to do when I encountered this lady. And so... What did I do? I fumbled around. Well, uh, you know, I didn't know what to say. I was thinking, I don't want to just blow her away. And what do I... So I just didn't do real great. Which the first response, I just kind of started talking and stammering a little bit. By the way, this is a lot easier than that. I'd speak to a few hundred Christians on a Sunday any day before speaking to one unbeliever who's asking questions that I may or may not be able to answer. And even those of you who have a fear of speaking, fear of public speaking, there's a great... Most people have a much greater fear of private speaking than public speaking if it's about the gospel. 
So I didn't do so. Uh, and then all of a sudden I felt like I had an idea the Lord dropped in my heart. So I just said to her, no, I don't believe in karma. I believe in the opposite of karma, which is grace. And grace means that all bad people, we're all bad people, and God does gloriously good things to bad people in Jesus. That's grace. Karma is you get what you deserve. Grace is you don't get what you deserve. You get the love and the mercy of God with eternal life because of his grace. I was able to share that with her after, after blah, 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 you know, kind of uh, jolting a little bit. And, and that's, that's it. Jesus is reaching all kinds of people. I didn't start the day saying, I'd like to meet someone whose philosophy of life is so far different than mine and see what the Lord would do. No, God is wanting to put us in situations and with people that he wants to share good news with all kinds of people. He wants us to pray, to be alert, to be aware. I don't expect to have a trance or an angelic visitation, but I expect that God will supernaturally put people in all of our paths, and it's not going to be the people that we say, oh, I'm just like them. Oh, we hit it off. We, I met them. We hit it off so great. It was just natural to share the gospel, and they said, man, I want to believe because we're just alike, and that's not the gospel. We're just alike, so believe like I do. Grace is extended. Oftentimes, God wants us to look for surprising encounters, people that we would see as hard cases far off. That's what's happening in this part of the Bible. Saul's scariest visitor to ever come to church is saved. Gentiles, whoa, no way. We can't even go in their house. They're dogs. We can't have anything to do with them. God's going to save a whole bunch of them. A room full of us here. Jesus is reaching all kinds of people. And here's what else happens. That Jesus' church is a union of all kinds of people. Jesus' church is a union of all kinds of people. Now, this goes beyond what we just read a little bit, but it doesn't go beyond the Bible. This is going to become a problem in Acts. That it might, some people might be excited, some weren't, but some might be excited that, wow, what happened? There's visions, his whole house got saved, that's great. Gentiles are becoming Christians, this is great, until they all come to church next week. Whoa. Yeah, and just all of the social and cultural barriers... They don't just evaporate like that. Like we go back to neutral and we're all neutral and we can just relate totally. Why? Because I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, doesn't matter. No, there's all this baggage, there's all this background, there's all these preferences, there's all these way of doing things, there's rivalries, there's parties gathering together around common things and dividing with one another. That's a big problem. So it's exciting that all the Gentiles get saved until they want to join their lives with us and we've got to live together with our differences. No, I quoted John Stott earlier, but this is what he said about this passage. Please listen to this carefully because I think it is very true. It's a very true observation. The fundamental emphasis of the Cornelius story is that since God does not make distinctions in his new society, we have no liberty to make them either. Because God makes no distinctions in his society. That is, All of us are on common ground in need of a Savior. He's not saying nobody's different, as if nobody has a different role. or He's not saying that kind of stuff. He's just saying that everyone is equally before before God in need of a Savior, saved by grace, and so there's no one that can look on anyone else as common. There's no one that can look on anyone else judging, well, they're not really in. We're really in because of fill in the blank. 
And that's going to really happen in the book of Acts. We're going to see that Cornelius, who's really different from Peter, and there are some people who are going to be very concerned and very critical that these people are allowed to come into the church and they don't have to get circumcised, the males, and they don't, they don't have to eat the dietary laws because there's going to be people who say, no, you've got to be a Jew to be a Christian. And so they're skipping that whole old covenant thing and going right to this new, and that's that's not allowable. There's going to be people that are be very critical that these people's practices aren't going to be like the historic Jewish practices. And so God is wanting to build a group of people with, with rich diversity. He's wanting to reach people that are different and blend them together in family for the glory of God. Here's another thing about the, where he starts. He starts with reaching a rich, powerful oppressor. That's who he reaches. Now, the Bible has tons of emphasis in the heart of Jesus, in the heart of the Lord, to care and to gravitate towards and to move towards the poor, the vulnerable, and the oppressed. But we dare not think that's all who Jesus saves. Because he starts with a rich oppressor. God wants to save oppressor and oppressed, and he wants them to be together in grace in Jesus. That's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel that he wants. He builds them together and calls us to walk together. One guy I read about this passage, just what he wrote about this, this section right here. He said, is there a class or category of people that you have avoided or mentally dismissed as beyond the reach of Christ's cleansing grace? Didn't we talk about this last week? We did. It's the same theme. I don't think we all got it down. I didn't from last week. I don't have this perfect yet. So we're going to take another week on it. Is there anyone, he asks this, is there anyone with whom you would not eat? Now, in the ancient Near East, a meal is about fellowship, relationship. They don't drive through Chick-fil-A and grab a bag of food and eat it in the car. That, that's, that's not what happens. They, they're not eating and watching the game at the same time. A meal is communal in nature. And so I love the question, is there anyone that you wouldn't commune with in your house? Who wouldn't you have over? Now I'm talking about the people of God now, unbelievers, that would be fair as well. But who, wouldn't, who would we not feel comfortable inviting over or maybe going to their house? Who would we not feel comfortable having over? Because that, that, that's a real test of how much of the freedom of the gospel is in our lives. It's one thing to give a high five on Sunday morning to someone that's different and say, isn't this great? We've got all kinds of different people here. I just love it. I just love Grace Church. There's like people who are different races and different opinions. They're just, well, yeah, great, sitting in the same room, but how about in my house, in your house? Who would it be awkward to have over for a meal? How about someone who's like much we talked about this last week. What about someone who's much more, much stricter? Let's say that much stricter in their pra- in their uh, practices than you. Whoa, they're going to. I wouldn't have them over. Man, they're really narrow. They're going to be. I'm going to feel judged the whole time. I'm going to be sitting there. Everything I'm doing, I'm thinking they're probably looking at me. I got to hide the TV before they even come over. We don't have a TV, and you know we really have one, but we don't. And uh, so. I didn't have to do that because I don't want them. They're too narrow. That'd be really uncomfortable for me. How about they're much more culturally liberal than me? I'm not inviting them over. They'll bring alcohol. And uh, so the, I'm not into that. They are. I'm not going to have them over because that would be really awkward. We, we can't get together as families because we have very different practices. 
as families. And that can go both ways. Man, I view them as like, I don't know, they're like super worldly. And if their family came over to our house and all the parents are there, they might rub off on my, my kids if they came in my house and my kids would be declared unclean. <laughs> I'm not talking about just willy-nilly sending the kids out. I'm talking about you're together as families here. And, oh, well, we, they're too... Couldn't do that. Or their, their kids are like wild. You know, I'm not going to have them over. They're going to be bouncing around the house. Or that goes the other way. My kids are wild, and I don't want to have them over. We can't really relate because they're, they're like really strict, and their kids will be at the table quoting scripture during the dinner. My kid will be throwing spaghetti across the way, and then they'll be judging me, and we can't really have them over. We don't relate with people like that. We're very different. We can see them on Sundays. We just wouldn't want to interact with them in any personal way, they're really hard to have a conversation with. I mean, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be silences. We're going to sit there. I'm going to ask a question. Then I'm going to ask another question, another question. They're just going to sit there. For those of you who are real talkers, what I found is that person doesn't mind. That quiet person's not like, I sure wish they'd keep the conversation going. They, they might like a little bit of a, it might be okay to pause every now and then. Step back from the caffeine, take a break. But don't have to just keep it going. It's going to be awkward. Well, what if they need someone to talk to? I don't want to invite them over. We couldn't relate with them. They have a lot of needs. And I know as soon as we sit and start talking, all of their problems are going to come out. And I love them on Sunday morning, but I wouldn't really want to go there. I feel separate from them. I don't want to interact. I don't want to bridge. They're, they're issue Christians, and so they have like these certain issues and that's what they always talk about. It's always on Facebook. It's always when we're talking. And if I have them over, the issue's going to come up. And I don't want to hear the issue. Of course, my issue is I don't want to relate with certain people, so I kind of got an issue as well. But <laughs> they're into politics. We're going to sit down, and it's going to be all about uh, conservative politics. That's what they're going to want to talk about. I really want to go there. They're going to sit down and think, well, it's going to be, it's all about missions. I'm going to feel like guilty that I'm not eating rice by hand in the meal. <laughs> because they've got, to, it's always about reaching, the, that's what they're going to talk about. They're going to bring up their homeschooling. They're going to all into caring for orphans. They're going to bring up their orphan thing, and that's all we're going to talk about. They're going to tell me about their Christian fitness program and how they're in shape. And I'm eating, a, I'm eating a bowl of ice cream. And they're going to tell me about their Christian diet. Probably whatever I serve won't be godly enough for their nutritional godly standards. They're into all the health food. They're into all the... They're going to tell me their philosophy. And tell me their philosophy about health. They're going to tell me whatever it is. They've got this issue. And it always ekes out. I really don't want to have anything to do with them. And so we celebrate the grace of God on Sunday morning, but the reality is that we just look for people just like us, and that is so foreign to the New Testament. When I was in seminary a lot of years ago, I took a church, studied church growth, and I was taught something called the homogeneous unit principle. I remember this, the homogeneous unit. Homogeneous means same people. Literally, that's what I mean, same people. And here's, here's the observation, and it's, accurately, it's probably an accurate observation. It's that the churches that reach the most people and grow the most are churches that are very similar, where everybody is very similar. And so if somebody walks in and goes, everybody's like me, I've got a place here. And so they grow because like attracts like. That's probably accurate in terms of, uh, a, socio, so, in terms of a sociological observation. 
But it couldn't be farther from the Bible. Nobody goes to Cornelius' house if it's just like me. Nobody wrestles through. Nobody deals with the cultural issues that are so difficult that you've got to get in a trance and God's got to speak to you three times and you refuse him the first time and you're an apostle. You're writing the Bible. We've got a guy writing the Bible that can't even imagine this. And here's the other thing that's very encouraging is that he doesn't stay here. He messes up. This is out of the passage, but right now he's going to go next week, come back. You'll see he's going to lead all these Gentiles to Christ. And then he's going to go down to Antioch, and there's going to be some Gentiles there. And he's going to think, oh, no, people are judging me. They think I'm hanging out with the Gentiles. These Judaizers think I'm hanging out with the Gentiles. And so he's going to not eat with them anymore. He's going to go cold. He's going to go dark on the Gentiles. Oh, boy, now after he welcomed them, preached the gospel to them, God sent me here. We're all one. Yes, great. Jesus is alive. We're all saved. Oh, I can't eat with them anymore. And Paul is going to show up and rebuke him publicly in front of everybody. It's going to take Paul to come rebuke Peter because he's not going to stay here. It's great that he's obeying now, but the whole cultural things and the fear of man, it's going to, it's going to come back up. The walls are going to come back. The walls aren't gone for good. And if they're not gone for Peter, how dare we think the walls are all gone for us? And that if somebody's different than me, it's just, well, yeah, I'm full of the Spirit. I'm just relate. All kinds of differences, practices, race, socioeconomic background, preferences, all these kinds of things. But the gospel is about reaching all kinds of people, and it's about building all kinds of people in union, into a church, so that when someone shows up, yes, they don't come say, everybody's just like me, so I fit in here. They say, wow, there's a lot of different people. Jesus must be here. How did that happen? How are those people relating? How are they with them? I don't get that, because that doesn't happen out there, but that happens with the power of the gospels, of the gospel. Sometimes we can wonder, do I really fit? I feel like people are very different. That means you fit. Biblically, that means you fit because the church isn't one eyeball where everybody's got the same gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 says. The the church is not one race, one background, one custom. That's what this passage teaches, Jew and Gentile alike. If you look around and some people are different, you fit. If somebody rubs you the wrong way, good. They're rubbing you the wrong way so that you can start being rubbed the right way towards God. That's, That's God's rubbing Peter the wrong way. If nothing ever challenges my customs and my comfort with how to live, then um, then none of us really ever mature. All kinds of people joined in union as a testimony to the power of the gospel. That's what's happening in Acts, and it's rough and bumpy. But for those who stick along for the ride, there's, there's glory in it all, because it's God at work. It's what the Lord is doing, and we want to be a part of that. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.